Hello. Hello. What's up? Hello. Hello? Hey, I don't know. Hey, what? Huh? <laughs> yep. Yeah, that, yeah, that's, sure. That's a male. Maybe. Yeah. Hey. Hey. You know, mm. sometimes you just, you know. Yeah. yeah. No. Yeah, yeah. Wait. What? Maybe. Yeah. Kind of. Are you sure? Mm, no. Well, if you say so, I guess it must be. Well, you know, sometimes you just, you know. Yeah. No, I definitely know. But if you had to, do, if you had to say, yeah, 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 you'd just say, yeah, 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 just, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah. May, no. Well, Maybe. Well. No. Well. Well, so what's up? What's going on? Nothing. Okay. Gonna have a lot of fun. Gonna hit a hum run. And the littlest league possible. In the littlest league possible. Gonna make Welcome back to Tater Tots for another week. I'm Tim. I'm Duncan. And hey, we are wrapping up the old baseball season this season. Um, the Pirates were mathematically eliminated from contention uh, oh, within the past few days. Yeah, Congratulations. And they also uh, gave up... What was this, 16 today? 16 today, 14 yesterday, yep, and yep, yep. Uh, 17 the day before that. So it's 47 runs over three games, which I, if it's not a club record for the Pirates giving up runs, it was certainly a club record for the Cubs scoring runs. Um, so congratulations to the Chicago Cubs uh, for further embarrassing the Pittsburgh Pirates. You, uh, Well, you really, yeah, I hope you're enjoying all your successes. You got to be excited for Brian Reynolds. Uh, of course I am. Um, uh, Josh Bell is hurt, on the other hand, and Gregory Polanco is not living up to his uh, expectations and Starling Marte is getting to be over the hill. Um, so I feel like Gregory Polanco is kind of a uh, one of those always what if guys. Yes, absolutely. Every year you're like, this is this, year. this is the year he's going to do it. But if of he course, can stay he's, healthy. Um, I think he is who he is at this point. I don't think he's, he's ever going to be that that kind of all star. Never going to stay healthy. Uh, yeah, uh, I think all is lost for the Pirates for the next five to ten years uh, <laughs> i really don't think there's anything to root for i feel i feel very similar uh about the pirates now as i did in like 2010 yeah um so which is not a good good place to be um no but on the bright side as i mentioned i love the philadelphia 76ers so that's something uh, are, are any of their players hurt no no in fact i, I think the future is bright everybody understands um what they can do if they remain healthy so you would think that there would be a, a renewed emphasis on staying healthy and 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 trying to win their win, win an eastern conference championship uh and i think they can do it and i have a lot of hope in them unlike the pittsburgh pirates uh and this is a baseball podcast so yeah 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 <laughs> yep yeah, yeah. all hope is lost is what i'm saying i would say that in general in terms of baseball the thing that's caught my eye over the past week since we last recorded mm. is a lot of uh, bad and unfortunate injuries that's right um we just learned uh today that mike trout 
our beloved Michael Trout is going to be out for the rest of the season with a foot injury. Yes, I had a question about that. Sure, I don't probably know the answer, but go ahead. What is a neuroma? Yep, that's I do not know the don't answer. Know the answer to that. Okay, it sounded really bad, uh, but I would figure that if it were really bad, that like people would be wailing in the streets or something. It's a pinched nerve, is what it is. Oh, okay, I'll probably be fine. He has he is having to have a surgery to repair his painful foot. Mm-hmm. That's bad. It's bad, we're but s- we're sad about our friend Michael. Were the uh, Angels even going to make the postseason? No. Yeah, so he'll be fine. He'll be, he'll be ready to go for next season. The Angels can make a run at nothing. Wow, there's 68 and 82. He's the best player. Like he's a, he's the best player of his generation. Probably the generation before that too. Yeah, man, he's stuck on a real stinky team. Real stinky team. Just put him on the Twins or something. Let's get this over with. Oh, I don't no think way. that he's he, ever going to... He signed like a 20-year contract or yeah. something. <laughs> yeah, I think he's committed to his stinky, stinky angels. Why? Why would you do that? My guess... I, we, we, we talked about this extensively. If you'll recall, you thought he wanted to be in the pitchers. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> my new suggestion is that he should uh, retire. I'm making, right. I'm making finger quotes. He should okay. re- retire from uh, baseball. Uh, and make a run at it in the podcast industry uh, by mm-hmm. joining us as a co-host on our podcast. Uh, and then the, when when he, you know, well, we'll, you know, our podcast doesn't have any kind of exposure or anything, and certainly will continue to not have any exposure uh, with Mike Trout as a co-host. And then, so yep. what I'm predicting <clears throat> is that Mike Trout, having retired to get out of that contract, and then after an unsuccessful run at podcasting, yep. uh, turned around and signed with the Minnesota Twins. Baseball's future. Right, like a fake retirement to get out of his big contract. Precisely. But as part of that, he would join the Tater Tots podcast. Yeah, and then that's a win-win for us, because our, our listens would probably go up like five listens per week. Moderate uh, bump in listenership. Yeah. Here's what I predict would happen. Uh-huh. We would become the Jazz, Snake, Weather, and Baseball podcast. <laughs> our bill would become even more crowded. This podcast would become, by percentage, even less about baseball. <laughs> We get Mike Trout on and be like, Mike, what's it like to hit a home run? And he'd be like, you know what, guys? I actually just want to talk about weather phenomena today. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. Sounds good. Just add it to the list. Yeah. And then maybe he gets bored of weather after a while and he says that he wants to rededicate his, his focus and energy to his first love, which is big. Ba- Do you think that baseball was like the gateway to weather phenomena for Mike Trout or was it the other way around? Hmm, good question. Because, of course, he grew up playing baseball in New Jersey. And a lot, not a lot of Major League Baseball players come from the New Jersey area. Right. So uh, what, because one of the reasons is because they have a big winter. And I wonder if he wanted to play baseball so bad that he would keep an eye on the forecast and learn all he could about what the weather portended. What I like to think is that he grew up being just a huge fan of weather. Yeah. But uh, living in New Jersey... Uh, he was only able to experience kind of a limited scope of what the weather could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he said, how can I, what kind of career can put me in a position? A lot of traveling. A lot of traveling to see. Could have been a salesman though. Different weather. Well, you know, when you think about it that way, but at, at in the moment it was like, well, obviously he's got to be a baseball player and dedicate his entire like life and energy to that. Yeah. Um, and that's how he, you know, arrived at being the, the generational talent that he is today. And of course the next natural step is I don't have a conclusion to this bit. All I want is for him to be on the podcast to talk to us about like squalls. What's a weather phenomena? 
Squall sounds good. What is that? I, I assume it's like a wind. A type. I of, don't know that I've heard of it. A type of sea wind. I'm going to Google it. Sudden or violent gust of wind or a localized storm, especially one bringing rain, snow, or sleet. I believe I've stumbled upon a Dungeons and Dragons thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, no, no. This is a hypothetical Dungeons and Dragons thing. Mm-hmm. That someone's built. Go on. It looks like a human person, but they're kind of... Made of weather? No. They're like metallic or something. They're coming out of the water. Oh, is it like a monster? Mm, it, it doesn't look very mean. It looks like a human man. It's It's got muscly body and a bald head. I think it's supposed to be playable. An unusual okay. race of ooze-based humanoids. The squall. Oh, delicious. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I came up with. You know who else got hurt? Christian Yelich. Yeah. Unfortunate. That one's Just really real bad, sad. too. It's really, really bad. Hurts. It's really bad because I would have preferred he win the MVP award over Cody Bellinger, even though he deserved it more anyway. But now Cody Bellinger is guaranteed to win the MVP award. Yeah. Unfortunately, the, wow, the Brewers actually, I was going to see. They're right the, in it. They've been really hot, too. They've been nine over the last ten. They're right in it. I think they swept the Cardinals or something. Oh, uh, that's tough. They did something really good. Um, so we're all we're all on the Brewers train, toot toot. Um, but, and then Christian Yelich got hurt. Yeah, now that train is run clear off the tracks. It. Um, well, I wouldn't say that. I mean, they could you still make it. You think they're going to, without their big superstar, Christian Yelich? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what a metaphor is. Maybe the caboose came unattached. You think Christian? Uh, you think if if the Milwaukee Brewers are a train, Christian Yelich, MV, the 2018 MVP Christian Yelich is the caboose of the train? Yeah, I mean, I think a train is a terrible analogy for a baseball team. All right, Get, take another shot at this analogy. Yeah, the a baseball team. Okay, is kind of like the house in up. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Right. Yeah. And you have a lot of balloons on it. Uh huh. Some and of them, is... some of them are bigger than others, I suppose. Okay. And Those Christian Yelich is a very players. big balloon. Big balloon. The house still has enough balloons on it to float, uh-huh. but perhaps not quite as high. Yeah, maybe pretty soon all the other balloons will pop, and then the house will have to land like on a precarious peak in South America or something. That seems very likely to me. Did the balloons pop it up, or did he just release them all? I don't remember. I haven't seen that movie since it came out, actually. Uh, we used to watch it all the time at after school care at the JCC for some reason. Oh, so you should remember. Yeah, I can't remember that particular beat. Um, I remember that he used to he cut uh, the the balloons with a with a with a key, right? That's... In order to lose some right a- lose some altitude. altitude. I might do that. Seems like a really inefficient. I mean, altogether, it seems like a really inefficient uh, mode of transportation. But what do I know? Yeah, I mean, I'm you've not. never traveled to South America, no, in, by any not. means. I'm not a I'm not a former uh, balloon salesman who worked at the zoo either. So that guy's definitely got uh, way more know how than I do. And you know who else got hurt? Who's that? Uh, Jose Ramirez of the the Indians. Indians, yeah. Well, I saw a video of Yasiel Puig hitting a ground ball right back to the uh, pitcher, and he didn't even run that ball out. I think the Indians might be over and done with. Because Yasiel Puig isn't hustling? Not hustling. The Indians are four and a half games back of the uh, the division. And yeah, but it's the wild card that they're really running that. Game and a half back of the wild behind the Rays and the they're wild card. St- they're still right in there. That AL wild card race is interesting to me. Game and a half between three teams. The Rays and the A's and the Indians. They're all and right the in there. 
The Red Sox, wow, how the mighty have fallen. Yeah, the Red Sox really beefed it. They beefed it bad. They fired their general... There's some more baseball news. Yeah, the Red Sox fired Dave Dombrowski. They fired him unceremoniously after winning the the World Series. Freeing the Pirates up to hire Dave Dombrowski. Do you think they will? Absolutely not. Really? No. Hmm. Hmm. That's an interesting proposition. Why would they do that? Why wouldn't they do it? Because they've never done anything that seems like a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start now. Um, man, what an interesting kind of heuristic. Like, does it sound like a good or interesting idea? <laughs> then the pirates then will the pirates not probably do, won't it. do it. Yeah. Boy. When was the last time the pirates have done anything good or interesting? Um. Even when they were good, the most interesting thing they have ever done is sign Russell Martin. Ever. They got, uh, Brian Reynolds. Felipe Vasquez, too. Felipe Vasquez. But other than that, and like... At the time, didn't seem like a great move. Right. Seemed like they were selling their all-star closer for peanuts. Not peanuts. He's a good pitcher, but... They, but at the they, time, it wasn't clear that he was a good pitcher. It was a selling move. It wasn't a... It was not a move for strength. Oh, you know, it was definitely interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. It was trading for Chris Archer. Uh, I don't know that it was a good idea, but it was definitely interesting. Yeah, so I think that the heuristic should not be good or interesting. Just good. It should, well, good and interesting, maybe. Because uh, uh, uh. you think you know, Dave Dombrowski would be both? Some people make the case that the Lonnie Chisenhall signing was good, but it was certainly not interesting. <laughs> uh, and then it turned out not to work out either, so... Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, Did he officially retire or anything? No, he's just been hurt. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but I'm just... Because we talked about him... Last offseason as a tater tot, speculated on the misery of his career. <laughs> I think he's still plugging away. I don't. I don't hey, think hey, I'm hey, good, good for Lonnie. It's too bad that him. it's too bad that Pittsburghers don't get to say his name. Lonnie. 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 Uh. I don't think he's retired. It's, it says he's still in the Pirates organization. So maybe next year. Maybe next year, Lonnie. You're age 31. His birthday's coming up. Oh, when's his birthday? Maybe I'll send him something. October 4th. Speaking of birthdays, uh, we got a podcast. <laughs> you gotta you gotta start doing better on these. <laughs> I have a birthday uh, to talk about, but later. Okay. Um, okay, so you want to say, here's how you do it. Speaking okay. of birthdays, I got a I got a birthday to talk about in a later segment we're gonna do. But first, on the podcast. But first, what do you, what do you want to talk about first? The we uh, uh, the Kings of Baseball. Okay, why you just linked to a video that was a Simpsons clip? This has nothing to do with baseball. There's some is there's bestest in your apartment? Nope, nope, nope. Whenever I think of a political campaign, I think of Bart demanding more asbestos. We need more asbestos. So I linked that as a placeholder. Okay, so we are uh, our our position is more asbestos. More asbestos. More we need asbestos. to stop. Here's what we need to do. We gotta take the baseball apart. Yeah. Whatever they're doing to juice it, we need to undo that and just fill stuff it with asbestos. Fill it with asbestos. <laughs> <laughs> that way, it'll be fireproof. <laughs> oh boy! Now that's a good idea. You know it. Wow. That's that's the that's gonna win us the election. I think. I think so. We should submit that to the Kings of Baseball nominating committee because that is an idea. <laughs> it certainly is an idea. It's interesting that we'll be talking about terminal illnesses on today's podcast. 
Indeed. Congratulations, too, to the California State Senate for passing a bill which will allow NCAA athletes to be paid. This seems like a huge deal to me. Oh, it's certainly a huge deal. Because I think that, like, it, it, it de facto means that the rest of the NCAA can't stand for very long. Because as soon as any school starts offering to pay their athletes, everyone's going to want to go there. And the only way to compete with that is for another school to start offering to pay athletes. I'm going to very quickly skim an article. Yeah. Uh, just to try to understand what the law is exactly. Uh, my understanding is it still needs to be signed mm-hmm. by Governor Newsom, and I'm not sure if he's going to do that. But I think that it would be a, a very important step. So it wouldn't... It seems that it would not and it would not allow schools to pay athletes. Mm-hmm. It would prohibit schools from taking away their scholarship money as a punishment. So it would it would open up college athletes to accept endorsement money. Um okay. Be, because they could or they, at the very least it would it would it would encourage them to take endorsement money because they couldn't lose their scholarship for it. Right. I imagine something else could happen. Like there, there probably still might be recourse for schools if they said well, we really don't feel comfortable with you taking endorsement money. Um, but with that being said, yeah, uh, I think that the college athletes should be uh, <clears throat> able to profit off of their labor. So uh, I'm a big fan of this law. <laughs> I think it's great for a step. Anywho. And uh, obviously our position as the king of baseball is that uh, college athletes of all stripes, including baseball players, yep. should be paid money. Do you think that if you were if you were a college athlete and they said, we're going to give you the nicest locker room, yeah. like it's going to be so cool, yeah. you're gonna, it's going to blow your 20-year-old mind. Sure, sure. Do you think you would mind that they weren't paying you like a wage? It depends on what the wage is, right? I, I do think that there is a, a pretty good amount of money that I would trade for that beautiful locker room, especially because they're going to spend so much time in it. Sure, I guess so. There's a lot of there's a lot of services within the locker room that are provided that. Yeah, they've they got like don't. masseuse and stuff. Food, you know, the plural of masseuse, masseuse. Yeah, and a uh, nice locker and a pool and a good exercise equipment and nutrition coaches and all kinds of stuff that one might enjoy. Therefore, as kings of baseball. Uh, we demand that college athletes receive names. They need more names. Um, hey, uh, 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 the Major League Baseball has broken a record for most home runs hit in a single season. Yeah, that's true. I believe the number of tater tots has gone down, which makes sense. That doesn't that doesn't surprise me. Although, of course, it's yeah. September right now. There are plenty of opportunities for new tater tots to make their way onto the board. There's about three weeks of baseball left. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's still a little bit of time for anybody if they want to sneak off or sneak on. Yeah. Uh, although I can say that I've taken a preliminary look at the names uh, of our, our possibilities for next season, and, and there are a few exciting ones on the list. Ooh. Ooh. You won't want to miss. You won't miss Big... our season of Tater Tots. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Giancarlo Stanton's on the list. Season two, I guess you would season say. Season two, episode one, Giancarlo Stanton. That is an interesting one. We'll probably cover him. He hit 60 home runs last year. Yeah, that's 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 an interesting one. I bet he got injured. You'll have to listen to find out. Hey. It's Jazz. Welcome to 1923. The Another year in Jazz. The the it's the Jazz age 
jazz music is coming out of every storefront uh-huh. and illicit speakeasy. And yeah. um, the streets are uh, paved with gold. Oh, I thought you were going to say paved with jazz. The streets are paved with jazz. Cars are made of jazz. Yeah, Local politicians, everybody's... from the constable all the way up to the sheriff, are screaming jazz from their jazz, lips. Jazz, jazz, jazz. And King Oliver's Creole what? jazz band was taking Chicago by storm. High so- Oh, this is the song called High Society? The song is called High Society. By right, King Oliver's Creole jazz band. A very popular recording. Uh, yeah. King Oliver, or Joe Oliver, was called the mm-hmm. Jazz King of Chicago. Chicago's got a lot of kings. Well, what's an, an example of another one? Sausage King. Chicago is the only one that comes to mind. Of course, that's a fictional king. <laughs> Ferris Bueller's Day Off. But... Right, right, right. Well, um, of course, King Oliver is uh, not fictional at all. He was the band leader for this famous uh, jazz band, which I picked partially because he was the jazz king, and we enjoy mm-hmm. things king on this podcast, People, but also kings. because of the interesting composition of his band. Uh, for this recording, yeah. he had uh, him and his protege, Louis Armstrong, on the cornet. Oh, ah, I know him. You do. Um, this is yeah. how Louis Armstrong got his start. He was um, tootled. By Joe Oliver, and he had plenty of nice things. He was what? Tootled. (laughs) I mean, to say he was under his tutelage. He was tootled, is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Um, We've all been tootled. Later on, Armstrong said if it had not been for Joe Oliver, jazz would not be what it is today. So he had high respect for the man. Um, The the band also featured Johnny Dots, spelled D-O-D-D-S, on the clarinet. Lil Hardin on the piano, Bud Scott on the banjo, and Baby Dots on the drums. Now, Baby, Baby Dots, Dots and Johnny Dots were two brothers, and they did not yeah. get along. Oh, no. They were just always like, scrapping. Um, just like um, those guys from Oasis, the Gallaghers. Go on. Yep. Uh, and they were, in the same, they were in the same outfit here. Just like the Gallaghers. Just like the Gallaghers. I love that Baby Dots was named Baby. Baby Dot. His was that his given name? No, his real oh. name was uh, his real name was the same as his father. I think it was uh, Andrew or something. That's why he went by Baby. He got the name Baby as a baby, and it stuck, which I appreciate yeah. because he seemed to be the meaner one. <laughs> and I like the idea of someone with something of a temper being called Baby, and I like their D- names. Johnny and Baby Dots. I discovered something interesting um, when I was researching the members of this jazz band, and that is that there is a Jazz Hall of Fame. Yeah, where is that? It's not. I don't believe that it is a real place, oh. but you can be named to it, and, oh. and they name only two people a year. Okay. And this got me thinking. Like, does that make it more or less exclusive than the Baseball Hall of Fame? Because of course, they could, in theory, elect up to, I don't know, like fifteen people to the Baseball Hall of Fame a year. Although that would be very difficult. But there are many more baseball players. Then there are jazz players, but then I said maybe there aren't because, of course, there are technically more people playing jazz. Yeah, but at a lot more levels. Yeah. And then on the uh, the other thing is that uh, 
it would be kind of like if they stopped playing baseball in 1965 but kept electing <laughs> players to the Hall of Fame. Um, but regardless, I did find it to be a rather small list. Okay. Um, but but uh, Louis Armstrong, Johnny Dots, and Baby Dots are all in uh, the Jazz Hall of Fame. What about and, Joe Oliver? Uh. Did I put the did I put the footnote next to his name? Uh, no. What a rip. And he's off. not in the Jazz Hall of Fame. What a real ripoff. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I think that we should start mounting ca- a campaign to get other people into the Jazz Hall of Fame. Okay, like Joe. Although Oliver. I think that we should start with um, uh, what's his face? Our pa- the patron saint of our podcast, Ornette Coleman. Ornette Coleman. I is think he is not already in the Jazz Hall of Fame? Are you kidding I, me? I believe he's not. Let me check on that. I, every time I Google Jazz Hall of Fame, it just turns up the Oklahoma Jazz Hall of Fame. All right, that's not it. It's the Downbeat Jazz Hall of Fame. And further, uh, Ornette Coleman is in the Jazz Hall of Fame. Oh, so. good. Okay. Well, that, that makes our job a little bit easier then. It means we no longer have to advocate for him being in the Jazz Hall of we Fame. We can spend more time uh, he was on. He was immortalized in that Hall of Fame by the readers in 1969. So every year they have a reader's poll and a critic's poll. Oh. And they can uh, inaugurate up to two people. Although yeah. sometimes the critics inaugurate additional people. But in theory, it's kind of uh, one each. Jimi the Hendrix. Most, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Jimi Hendrix is in it. He was a reader's choice. Look at his list now. There's Frank yeah. Sinatra. And additionally, just like the Baseball Hall of Fame, yeah, they have a Veterans a Committee. Veterans Committee. <laughs> right. <laughs> which goes, goes backwards in time to inaugurate people who the readers and the critics may have missed, which is how Baby Dots, Baby Dots made his way into, <laughs> into the Jazz Hall of Fame. Do you think there's a lot of... I, I can't imagine that this is the case, but... Do you think that there is any semblance of bitterness that the Veterans Committee exists in the same way that people are bitter about the Veterans Committee at the Baseball Hall of Fame? I'm just eyeballing the list of jazz veterans that they have allowed in. Mm. And it mostly looks, it mostly checks out to me. Uh, Although there are certainly some people on this list that I don't recognize, especially as compared to the readers and critics list. Hoagie Carmichael. Yeah. I, but I don't want to cast aspersions on Hoagie Carmichael. I don't know anything about him. This guy's given name is Hoagland Howard Carmichael. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, he deserves it just for the unfortunateness of his name. Yeah, but look at this guy's face. What an interesting. Oh, he's very sharply angled. Man. I like his face. I think that's a cool jazz man face. Uh, yeah, for sure. Songwriter, musician, songwriter, musician, actor, and attorney. He's kind of a pop musician. Yeah. Yeah, he was like a, a pop artist with some jazz-oriented numbers. Hoagie. Hoagie. Huh. Well, at least All right, Robert- well, we took a deep dive down here on the Jazz Hall of Fame, which I really only wanted to uh, make a passing reference to because I found it very interesting. Yeah, so I uh, that's uh, that was a, a fun little jazz recording, and that was from the year 1923. Now, put yourself in the year 2004. I've done it. I was in fourth grade. The streets paved with jazz. Still, yes, they've been the the infrastructure needs to be updated. <laughs> yes, uh, jazz on the top of every skyscraper. <laughs> the bridge, there's a, a bridge to jazz running through Alaska. Yeah, and the uh, and the Trans Siberian Bridge the also ri- made of jazz. The rivers overflow with jazz. The river is on fire with jazz. Yep. Um. 
And uh, I wanted to uh, play you a snippet of a song by Bill Frizzell. Oh, yeah. Which is a soul fusion slash soul jazz track called 1968. Play that funky music. One thing that I noted, uh, now that we're sort of getting into the meat and potatoes of Jazz's early life, yeah, um, and and also as we work backwards through, uh, you know, Jazz's geriatric modern era, modern era mm-hmm. um, is that there there seem to be I, I I would be curious to see when the sort of the 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 meter turned from one to the other. But, you know, the the emphasis on early jazz seems it to be very much on, like, party music. Yeah, uh, of course. Of course. It, you know, it, 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 it evokes the images of, of your Fitzgeraldian uh, jazz age kinds of parties. Um, but personally, when I think of jazz, and my favorite kind of jazz to enjoy is, is the, I don't want to say smooth jazz, because I know that Kenny G is sort of a... a yeah, I think you're thinking of cool jazz. Cool jazz, yeah, that's a yeah. good word for it. Is that like a real subgenre? That's what you might describe like the Miles Davis heyday as. So see, that's the kind of jazz that I feel like when I go for jazz, mm-hmm. that's the kind of jazz that I want to go for. Yeah, uh, not actually that hot. Not big hot party, but you know, some occasional, I like an occasional, a hot solo. A hot lick, yeah, but mostly this is the kind of music that you can throw on some sunglasses to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. All I'm saying is that I would be interested to see... Where, kind of where that switches where, around. Where the emergence of cool jazz comes from. I think not for a while. I think that, you know, you get into big band stuff in the 30s. Right. Um, which is still quite hot. Mm. And where do you go from there? What happens in the 40s? You'll have to keep listening to find out. Yeah, keep listening for a long time. Yeah, a very long time. <laughs> I'm excited. I. Uh, You're excited for this long journey through the history of jazz that we're going on. I really enjoy cool jazz. And even some, you know, I, I don't know that you would characterize bebop necessarily as cool jazz. Because cool I wouldn't. It's a little bit extra. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but you know, it it, it is. It's kind of a different genre than we're dealing with right now. Everything that we're dealing with right now is big mm-hmm. ensembles. You're not going to find any trios um, in this era. And maybe it's just anything like that. Maybe it's just the the chronological distance between ourselves and that era that makes me sort of averse to it Mm -hmm. um but anyway that's that's my feeling and preference at this point yeah Yeah. you're missing some of that um the the jazz that that you really think of as that platonic form correct and i get that but there's no skipping ahead no it's not reminds me this reminds me kind of of old time explorers not even that old time but Someone 100 years ago would say, I'm going to go on a trip to, you know, um, Antarctica or South America, and I'm not going to be back. I don't expect to be back for 18 months. <laughs> That's us with jazz. Yeah. We've gotten on the, the slow steamship to jazz land, and we are... <laughs> Ooh, boy, I like that. I kind of wish we had, like, fun episode titles, because slow steamship to jazz land is beautiful. We can just call that our... That's the segment name. 
we're just gonna call the jazz missives, segment the missives, missives from the slow steamship. We're just sending back like telegraphs every once in yeah. a while, like nineteen twenty three. Except of course instead of telegraphs, it's weird internet recordings that we do. Yeah, yeah. I like that idea. Um, so to, to get back to Bill Frizzell's album, just for a second, please. Um, we briefly touched on this year in jazz when we talked about the not the oh the Herbie Hancock album that one album of the year in mm-hmm. which he claimed uh, was only the second album to win best the second jazz album to win album of the year. In fact, it was not. Um, this 2004 was the year that Genius Loves Company by Ray Charles won album of the year, another jazz album and this album by bill frizzell won the grammy award for best contemporary jazz album i do think it's interesting that the grammys um awards contemporary jazz differently than because you would figure that if one jazz album won the best album of the year it should win the best contemporary jazz album by default owing to the fact that it did come out contemporarily but i think that they're kind of thinking of the genres as slightly different ray charles's album was in the style of older jazz, whereas this is certainly a, a modern style. Sure. Following the trajectory of, of, of what jazz has become rather than Ray Charles, who has established kind of his voice already and, and isn't likely to move from it. Yeah. yeah. So I thought that, I just thought that was kind of interesting. That's kind of nuanced though for, for I, an award show. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Grammys seems like a, like a lost cause to me already. So Real big pile of nonsense. Yeah. Well, heck. Well, heck. Well, heck. Well, heck. Uh, all right. So, doop, 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 doop. Uh, how about we... a good a good segue? How about a good segue? All right. Speaking of, uh, <clears throat> speaking of the Grammys. No, that's no good. Hang on. Speaking of. No, I like this. Speaking of the Grammys. Yeah. How about a man who's old enough to be my grampy? Oh, yeah, perfect. Yeah, go ahead. Today we're talking about um, little-known indie baseball player Lou Gehrig. <laughs> this is a guy who you might not have heard of. But I think he has a story. Something There's something Worth there. Worth telling. Yeah. Uh, we decided to talk about uh, Heinrich Ludwig Gehrig today. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, I, I at first Tim brought this proposal to me and I said, well... We can't do that. Too this is the Tater Tots podcast. Yeah. It's too mainstream. We like to do the people who have an unusual story. Right. But then Tim pointed out to me that we started this historic endeavor by talking about Ted Williams. <laughs> so we really do not have a reputation to protect. And <laughs> heck, I think it's kind of interesting to 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 go over the story of Lou Gehrig again. I think a lot of people know it, but of course you don't know all the details. And there's kind of a reason that he's a fun and famous story. Whether or not... The Ted Williams thing qualifies in us enough as like indie cred because there's maybe a case to be made. I don't know that we have any kind of reputation that is at in- all. Well, yeah, right. That th- there's no one threatening our <laughs> reputation because. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, I saw you. I see your concern, and 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 this is Lou Gehrig's uh, rookie season, I believe. Uh, it is, and I think that kind of rescues this. That the tater tot we're going to discuss today. Uh, from 1923 was the first home run of his career in sure, his rookie season. The other tater tot will be the uh, last of his career. Oh, that's good. So we do have a little bit of parallelism. There are a couple of parallels at long last between uh, our two tater tots for today. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit later, but let's get back to Lou Gehrig. 
So, as I mentioned, uh, Lou Gehrig was born Heinrich Ludwig Gehrig. He was born to German immigrant parents in New York. He grew up speaking German at home. And he is a, a born and bred New Yorker. He was born on the Upper East Side, never lived anywhere else. And in fact, save for two years playing in the minor leagues in Connecticut, um, he spent his entire life playing baseball for New York affiliated teams. I find that so unsettling. Really? Yeah, you know why? It's because, and I hate to bring up Mad Men on this podcast again, um, but it's because uh, there's a character on Mad Men who has never left New York, mm-hmm. uh, and he's kind of like this blue blood guy um, who, you know, whatever, fourth generation, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, and in spite of that, he's like grossly incompetent at certain things. That like you would think like like driving like it's right. a big it's a big character uh, detail of his that he does not know how to drive. That means right, he a, sounds like a New Yorker. It means a lot to his character because he's a born and bred New Yorker. He yeah. just never had to drive, um, and that's that's just the the flavor that I get from that. I Lou Gehrig is doesn't seem to be like he, he's an immigrant family and everything, and so it doesn't seem like he was like a. But he also went to Columbia, so I don't I don't know. There's a lot of if you were a real New Yorker, you would have gone to the Bronx College of a. Uh, of uh, 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 technology. Yep. He did go to Columbia on a football scholarship. Sure. And um, his 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 uh, baseball coach recommended that he um, do that same thing that Jim Thorpe did, which is play minor league ball under an assumed name at the risk of losing his amateur status, which he did and was immediately found out. Huh. And here's what I can't figure out. Okay. Uh, it's claimed that he was then banned from collegiate sports but then also that he continued playing collegiate sports. So I do not know what happened to Luke Gehrig, uh, except to say that all those things seem to have happened. Um, He only played in Columbia for two years um, before he was signed by the Yankees and spent those two years, I mentioned, with the Hartford Senators. Um, And in those two years, I think he went back and forth to the Yankees, although minor league statistics from that time aren't available. So I'm not sure if he was called up at the end of the season or whether he was going back and forth, but he spent very little time with the Yankees during those two years. Um, even though in his limited sample size, he was incredibly good. Yeah. Yeah. What a weird... I mean, we're going to go on and talk about Babe Ruth a ton, I imagine. Yeah, it's pertinent to this story. He's an exceptional baseball player. Twice an MVP. Seven times an All-Star. Six times a World Series champion. Triple crown in 1934. You're looking at Lou Gehrig's statistics here? I'm just looking at Lou Gehrig. I meant to see about Columbia, but I'm kind of caught up in how He was so good. Mm-hmm. And uh, you mentioned uh, Babe Ruth, but I mean, the entire Yankees lineup of this era, I'm not the only person to make this observation, but no. um, it, was, it was just bananas. Lou Gehrig was assigned the number four, and I love this. It was because he batted number four in the lineup after Babe Ruth, who was number three. Yeah, that was the whole thing. The guy who batted before Babe Ruth was number two, uh, yep. and so on and so forth. Uh, that was all the numbers were for back then. Yes, and that's convenient, and they should uh, bring it back. You think that everybody's number should just be one through nine? Yep. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Oh, uh, okay. What about the bullpen? They can just be 10 through 15, uh, 25 or whatever. 25 yeah. or whatever. The bench. Like, what if What if you want to sh- switch your order up a little bit? And you gotta switch the numbers. God. <laughs> <laughs> that does not seem convenient it's not convenient for the clubhouse manager for sure no but it's every... convenient for me because then i know where they're batting you gotta have a jersey for every actually that wouldn't be that hard 
No, yes, it would. You'd have to no, have a lot more jerseys. Art. No, you just need Velcro numbers. He's making the mm, good idea face. It's not a terrible idea. Uh, it would certainly hurt Major League Baseball jersey sales, though. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not a business guy. I'm an idea man. So, yeah, it was in 1923 that he hit the home run that we're talking about today. Uh, it came at the end of the season uh, on September 27th in a game against the Red Sox in Boston. The The Yankees, as they often were during the 20s, were incredibly good that year. And the Red Sox that year were extremely bad. Uh, the listed crowd was 3,000 to see this game. And the Red Sox beat up on... Or sorry, the Yankees beat up on the Red Sox 8-3. to um, and it lasted an excruciating hour and 27 minutes for that high-scoring game. Listen, um, that's what we need more of in <laughs> baseball. Yes. Just, I mean, really in every that, sport. I don't want to, I don't want to be Honestly, if I went, if I went to a baseball game and it only lasted an hour and 27 minutes, I might feel a little ripped off. That is a very short sporting event. Huh. I, I can't really conceive of being upset. But that's only because I'm very, very much used to sporting events lasting upwards of three hours or more. I don't know if we're upset, but I would be a little disappointed. Like, that, I mean, it takes you longer to get to and from the game. Right. Sometimes. Uh, so I don't know. That was surprising to me. I know that baseball games are shorter in those days, but the fact that this was a high-scoring affair and it still lasted that short a time is is pretty wild. No commercial um, breaks. No commercial breaks, but, you know, they still I, had pitcher warm-ups and stuff. I want to jump in on two things about uh, Lou Gehrig's collegiate career. I want you to jump in on them. The first is that it seems like it was not the, his Columbia manager who encouraged him to play summer ball under his assumed name. Oh. Uh, but it was the manager of the New York Giants, uh, the legendary John McGraw himself. Oh, yes? Uh, who encouraged him to do that. Uh, and if I'm reading the Wikipedia page correctly, and I may not be, yeah. It seems like maybe he was just banned from sports for a year. Would that make any sense? I mean, I don't know that it would no, make any No, that still wouldn't. When did he? <laughs> Nothing about any of this makes sense. What I'm re- The sentence I read, after he played a dozen games for the Hartford Senators in the Eastern League, he was yeah. discovered and banned from college collegiate sports his freshman year. For his freshman year, perhaps. Which, yeah, that's, that's yeah, the so way maybe that he was like choosing to interpret it. Yeah, going back and forth, playing a little bit of... A little bit of minor league ball because he could have if he was playing. Wait, summer, oh, so maybe it was his after his senior year of high school. He that played he went summer to play ball. Minors. Yeah, he didn't get to play sports his freshman year in college, and he did sophomore year, and then after that, uh, he was his contract was purchased by the Yankees. Well, he played he played in 1923 for the baseball team, the Columbia baseball team. Yeah, but that would make sense because that's also the year that he debuted in the majors. Oh, that's right. Of course, that's the year we're talking about, and the year that he hit his tater tot home run. He hit the tater tot in that game that I described. Yeah. And here I'm. I'm gonna take another small, uh, uh, small tangent here and, and tell you the name of the home plate umpire in that baseball game. Oh please! It was Pants Rowland. Pants Rowland. Pants Rowland had a, a distinguished career all throughout baseball in many, many roles, which made him the perfect candidate to be the very first king of baseball and our patron saint. Yes, he is. A Thank part- you to Pants, Ornette Coleman, and Pants Howard. Pants Rowland. Pants, I mean, I would say if the two segments of our podcast are baseball and jazz, mm-hmm. those are the two men to whom we light candles. Yeah. We need a third candle. We need a snake patron snake. saint. <laughs> the patron saint. Is, that's just St. Patrick. Although he chased the snakes out of Ireland. 
Who's the saint that like wormly welcomed? Honestly, I would like our saint to be a snake. Just a, just a snake? Maybe we can find an inspiring story about a snake. What about the snake that we gave you as a gift? Um, he's doing great, Henry Henry the snake. Henry the snake. He's, he's, he's all hatched and he sits on our kitchen counter now. Patron saint of snakes. Um, if you don't want to accept it, that's fine. We keep looking for a new snake. Uh, he's not a real, he's not a real snake. I'd prefer a real snake. Touche. So, uh, so going back to Lou Gehrig, as Please. we mentioned, he yeah. was really incredibly good. And as soon as he started to get consistent playing time in 1925, he became an extreme, even before that, like I mentioned in his limited sample size, he was extremely good. Mm. Um, his, his, his first year with substantial playing time, he came in 24th in MVP voting the next year, 10th. And then the next year, he became the MVP uh, in a season in which he put up 11.1 wars, yeah. just tied for ninth yeah. uh, on the list of best seasons of all time for a position player. Yeah. Um, the thing that struck me about that list of best seasons of all time for a position player is, oh my God, Babe Ruth is on that list yeah, so here, many times. Your top 10, uh, Babe Ruth. Yep. Babe Ruth. Mm. Carl Yastrzemski. Nice. Babe Ruth. Yep. Uh, this is... Rogers Hornsby. Yep. Barry Bonds. Yep. Babe Ruth. Yep. Barry Bonds. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lou Gehrig. Good. Babe Ruth. Good. That's the top ten. That's a good list of players, I would say. Well, it's a good list of players. In that it's a good it's list a, of four players. It's a compact list of players. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Five obviously, yeah, Lou Gehrig shared the stage with Babe Ruth for uh, most of his career, and to share to say shared the stage is kind of generous because Lou Gehrig had what seems to be a common baseball problem, which is that he was among the best players of all time. He just happened to share a team with probably the best baseball player of all time. Yeah, I mean his his list of achievements in 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 the time that he played was incredible. The number of home runs that he hit, his RBI totals, um, hits, everything he did, and every time he did it, it was overshadowed by something even crazier that Babe Ruth did. I kind of wonder because I've read a couple of times now about uh, how Babe Ruth regarded a lot of his teammates, uh, uh-huh. which, as you'll recall, uh, was to because he couldn't remember names, we just call most of them kid. Yeah. Uh, except for that one guy we called Horse <laughs> I think we covered him for the podcast. I can't remember his name. He's I don't one... think that we did. No, we I did. I think he that was... we considered it. He was the guy who was struck by lightning. What was his name? Oh, yeah. He was an honorary tater tot. Pat Collins, maybe. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That was the guy. Babe Ruth called him Horse Face. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> what a good career. My question is, do you think that Lou Gehrig earned Babe Ruth's respect enough so that Babe Ruth learned his name? I do think so, because yeah. there's a description, I've obviously read quite a bit about the commemoration ceremony that came at the end of Lou Gehrig's career, and, and Babe sure. Ruth, along with many of his Yankees teammates were there, but Babe Ruth gave him a nice hug, I think, and said some words. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah, He, uh, as I mentioned, he hit, 1923 was his only tater tot season. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1924, he hit zero home runs, but again, that was in like 13 plate appearances. And we'll get to the last season of his career, which he also hit zero, but... For most of his other seasons, he hit copious amounts of home runs, including sure. seasons of 49, 49, 47, and 46 home runs, which is a lot of seasons with a lot of home runs in them. Yep. What's um, the career was, for, babe, for Lou Gehrig? What's his career number? I think number? it's uh, 523 or something like that. That's I a good number. I don't, don't have it pulled up. Lou Gehrig. He has a lot of home runs, particularly considering... His relatively early retirement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he... 
um you have his page up what was his what was his age in his final year 36 and he died at 37 um yeah 493 career home runs he was an all-star every year uh in his career between 1933 and 1939 i'm surprised that he wasn't an all-star before that point but gosh that's a lot of black ink on his oh yeah reference page oh okay. yeah <laughs> Yeah. Uh, another honor that he had is he was the first player in the 20th century to fit, hit four home runs in a game. And apparently he came quite close to hitting a fifth, but it was robbed of the warning track or caught at the warning track. I don't know. I wasn't there. Why not? Couldn't make it. I, 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 uh, yeah, my time machine is in the shop. Busy. Yeah, I understand. It's hard that, to... That's a really interesting idea that I just threw out there that I couldn't make it. Make it. Back in yeah. time because my time machine is unavailable. That is interesting. That's like just just something to ponder. Mm-hmm. Here I'm gonna. This is like my last funny story about Lou Gehrig. Uh, at the uh, this, uh, he agreed to hire Babe Ruth's agent at one point. The, this is I, as soon as I asked you if you thought that Babe Ruth knew his name, it occurred to me that he probably did because he recommended his agent. And Babe Ruth's agent persuaded him to audition for a big time Hollywood movie role as Tarzan. King of the Apes. Lord King of the, of the Apes. Apes. King um, of the Apes. King of the Baseball. Apparently Tarzan at the time was kind of like James Bond. In that you could just uh, have an actor for a couple films and then get a new one. And Luke Gehrig wanted to be the next Tarzan. Okay. Uh, he, he did a photo shoot um, posing as Tarzan uh, in a series of widely distributed embarrassing photos himself um, in a leopard spotted costume with a big club. Uh, And when Tarzan creator Edgar Rice Burroughs spotted the outfit, he telegrammed Gehrig to say, I want to congratulate you on being a swell first baseman. That's a kind of a mean thing to say, given that I don't think that this is such a bad photograph. Um, There are a lot of photographs. I would encourage you to just Google Lou Gehrig Tarzan because this is a whole photo shoot. It's not terrible. He has a nice body. He's a professional baseball player. Yeah. But it is a very goofy thing to do. Especially unsolicited. I'm not sure exactly what the deal was. Who asked him to to take these photos? I bet, but the they were they did. were all over the papers. Yeah, this isn't great. I at first I was kind of like, I don't know what he has to be embarrassed about, but these are kind of embarrassing. They're a little bit embarrassing. Additionally, kind of... the entire character of Tarzan is rather embarrassing. <sighs> yeah, what's his deal? Is he a superhero? I watched the Tarzan movie recently, the animated movie. Yeah, 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 and he can do things that. Even if you were raised by gorillas, I would think that humans would have a hard time doing. He kind of surfs on the vines. Right. Yeah, it doesn't seem like you could do that. And another thing about that movie... <laughs> so yeah, good. Let's get into it. No, go ahead. A lot of those songs are just sung by uh, Phil Collins off screen. Really? Yeah. Which is something that I probably knew. Um, because I had seen the movie before, and I'm also familiar with the songs and i know that phil collins isn't a character who sings the songs on screen in the movie uh but it never i watched it recently as did i mention that um and it it didn't occur to me until i watched it recently that unlike all of my other beloved disney films uh in which some of my favorite songs are from none of the characters in the tarzan movie sing uh there's that one song that Rosie O'Donnell and her friends sing when they're smashing up the uh, camp. I, I don't know that I've ever seen this movie. It's kind of a nonsense song. It's a decent movie. It looks cool and it's fun. Uh-huh. Um, 
but it's just very strange and i think that that's maybe why it's not so memorable because like the characters aren't performing the songs it's just like the songs are being they're phil collins songs that he wrote for the movie yeah uh that are just being played over a lot of there's a lot of montages oh and they're just kind of about tarzan yeah that's interesting yeah it 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 really kind of to me it made me feel less engaged um because it wasn't like you know the other thing about those songs is that the thing that they say about like songs and musicals is that they're supposed to be like verbs whereas like pop songs or 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 other kinds of songs are maybe more like adjectives Uh, i haven't heard this this is an interesting theory i think i listened to somebody say that on a podcast about la la land um they thought that their songs were adjectival well the the i think it was the song exploder about la la land and the guys who wrote the songs for La La Land were just talking about how when they were in school, all their professors said, you know, when you think about writing a song for a musical, it's got to be talking, like, it's got to be advancing the character, the particularly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and these songs were just kind of, like, generally and in a vague sense about what Tarzan was going through. Interesting. I wonder if I wonder <laughs> if they asked Phil Collins to write these songs without a completed script. It's really weird. You should watch the movie, though. It's not bad. I might watch it. All right, let's move on. <laughs> hey, uh, and this is, uh, we, we told a fun story. Yeah. And now I'm going to get into the advent of uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, Lou Gehrig's disease. Sure. Um, and I'm going to get into that by talking about his consecutive game streak. Obviously, we've talked about Cal Ripken's famous streak, but before he broke the record, it was held by Lou Gehrig. The Iron um, Horse who played 2,130 games. Yeah, I'll tell you what, Lou Gehrig, uh, the record uh, that Lou Gehrig set consists of 2,130 consecutive games. Yes, it does. Over the course of his career, Lou Gehrig played in 2,164 games. So, so yeah, so <laughs> I guess that started in 1925 then. Probably just about 1925, yeah. Yeah, starting in 1925 all the way through the end of his career uh, in 1936. Nine. 1939, sorry. Um, And yeah, the reason that I think this is related to his disease, and let me not even say think, the reason that I bring this up in this context is because Lou Gehrig took a lot of beatings on the head, Mm. as a lot of baseball players did in his era. This was pre-batting helmets, um, and he got drilled in the head at least a couple times, but because he was in the midst of this playing streak, he continued to go out there day after day. Um, There was some trickery uh most notably one time the yankees gm postponed a game uh as a rain delay on a day that lou Gehrig had the flu despite the fact that it wasn't raining what kind <laughs> of punk what kind of nonsense <laughs> how can someone get away with that uh yeah i that's that one, outrageous that's the worst one yep um but more concerningly than that one time he got drilled in the head he was knocked unconscious for five minutes mm. um but he was still in the lineup the rest of the day uh one day he was listed as being the starting shortstop and leadoff hitter, but he just took one plate appearances before he was replaced. Jeez. Um, so there, there were lots of little shenanigans like that to keep him in the lineup, using him as a pinch runner and all kinds of stuff. Right. I don't think that that necessarily takes away from the magnitude of his achievement, but I do think especially the getting drilled in the head stuff and the unconsciousness and the fact that he probably had lots of undiagnosed concussions uh, could have something to do with the advent of his disease. Um it's, yeah. it's unclear. I don't want to... I'm not a doctor, but... So ALS, or Luke Gehrig's disease, is a nervous system disease. Yeah. 
is it contracted neurologically? I, I'm not sure. It's it, it could be. It's not out of the question that these head injuries related to his disease, but we don't know the answer because there was never an autopsy of his body. Hmm. Um, and why, we're skipping not? ahead a little bit, but I think that's okay. Um, there was some interest in this at the turn of the century, at the turn of this century, yeah. with some researchers who wanted to get his medical records to find out whether the Mayo Clinic had um, evaluations on this. But with the consultation of some experts at the Mayo Clinic and elsewhere, they decided that even with the records, because they did not have that autopsy report and his body was burned, there's really no way to know. Did they not perform an autopsy because that just wasn't done? I believe that they just didn't didn't see a reason for it, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so once notably, he had what was described at the time as a lumbago attack, um, and he had to be fully helped off the field. And that it was the next day after that, actually, that he only took that one plate appearances before being replaced. And many speculate that that was one of the early signs of his disease, um, dizziness and inability to control his muscles. Gosh. Um, yeah, and, and it took hold really fast. In the 1938 season, he was still very good, but he took a noticeable dip from where he was. He complained that he was just exhausted the whole season. He didn't feel like himself. And the next year, 1939, it was it was really obvious that something was wrong, you know. A lot of players take a sudden a sudden dip, like that's not unusual, but he didn't hit a single home run in spring training, and obviously he had a lot of power. He only played a little bit of the season, but his performance was so abysmal. He was he hit like 129 or something. Uh, he could barely field his position at first base. And after after only a couple of weeks, he decided to bench himself. It's wild that it took him benching himself. Yeah. That's a real bummer. Well, I mean, I think it's better than the alternative, right? He kind of recognized that he was actively hurting this, the team, and he said, maybe maybe stop. a little bit of rest will do me right. But it turns out that that was the end of his career. He never played another baseball game after he decided to bench himself. Dang. Yeah, and there's a picture that ran the next day on a lot of newspaper covers that I thought was kind of poignant. Um, yeah. We can include in the show notes. Uh, it's him sitting on the edge of the dugout, kind of looking wistfully out at his teammates. Um, yeah, so soon after that, um, he was diagnosed with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis by Charles William Mayo of Mayo Clinic fame at yeah. the Mayo Clinic. Uh, and he was given a life expectancy of fewer than three years, uh, including the rapid loss of his ability to swallow and speak. Um, just a lot of muscular atrophy that would kill him quickly. Um, the Yankees quickly declared July 4th Lou Gehrig Appreciation Day. Um, and between two games of a doubleheader, a lot of people came to speak about Lou Gehrig, uh, including a lot of his former teammates from the 20s Yankees, the mayor, um, lots of front office folks. Um, and it was not in the what would you say the the schedule for Gehrig to actually give that famous speech? But oh, wow. the the cran the crowd started chanting his name, and it does seem that he had that speech prepared. His wife had worked with him to prepare it, so it wasn't completely unexpected. Well, um, and it's a good speech. I think we'll drop in some of the surviving audio. Sure. For the past two weeks, you've been reading about a bad break. Today. I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. When you look around, wouldn't you consider it privilege 
to associate yourself with such a fine-looking man as a standing in uniform in this ballpark today. That I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you. So we don't have um, audio of the full speech as delivered by Gehrig. Of course, it was notably um, uh, performed in the movie that came out soon after his death, The Pride of the Yankees. It's unclear exactly what the text of the speech was. The text for that movie was given to the director by Lou Gehrig's wife as, as prepared, but some of it deviates from what was recorded of Gehrig, but it does seem to be fairly close, and that portrayal of Gehrig really solidified this as one of those defining American speeches. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, he declared himself the luckiest man on the face of the earth, in my opinion, which is uh, probably not true. <laughs> I mean, what is luck? <laughs> it's a pretty subjective, I would think. And the man, he if he thinks he's the luckiest man on the face of the earth, he can be the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Um, it's funny because he kind of frames the speech around this being a bad break, um, which is a very funny way to describe uh, a horrible life-threatening illness. Well, terminal illness. It's a bit of an uh, understatement, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he says, you know, you may think this is a bad break, but he considers himself the luckiest man. It's a very nice speech. I, uh, I don't know why I, I remember just like out of the blue wanting to listen to the speech one day. Yeah, uh, and I did, and it, it's a very moving speech. Just like I, there was no reason for it, but I, I remember pulling it up uh, on a random afternoon and uh, uh, for, uh, having an unscheduled cry uh, about it. Yeah, and it's one of those great pieces of American literature, I guess I would say. Sure, um, rhetoric even. Yeah, I've I've taken the call in everything literature, but it, it definitely is. Um, and. Uh, yeah, his his number was the first to be retired in Major League history. That's because um, I would imagine there there weren't very many numbers. There weren't. There hits. weren't very many numbers, very many players. Yeah. Um, but the Yankees said, no one shall be number four moving forward. And to this point, they've held true to that. Although I will note that they do have the number four on jerseys. They didn't take the number four entirely out of They didn't retire so. the digit four is what you're saying. <laughs> they didn't do that. So I'm just saying you could have gone a step further. And just entirely retired the digit. No one's allowed to be four in any uh, place, ones or tens. Yeah. I mean, or, or hundreds. Or hundreds, but that, that's a while off. Closer for the Yankees than anybody else, I would say. Right. Especially if they were going to start retiring digits because they did retire uh, Babe Ruth's number soon after this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I like this idea. Um, for some reason, um, the mayor of New York, Mr. LaGuardia, offered him a position as the New York City Parole Commissioner. Um, and for mean? some reason, he served in a very regular job for the next year and a half until he died. Um, well. Just kind of touring prisons and like checking in on parole officers and stuff. Great. Which is interesting, a weird thing, but apparently he was very passionate about well-ordered parole. Uh which is fine, as passionate as he was about baseball, I don't know. I probably not. I mean, man, he still did the job, and he refused to have the press follow him or anything. He couldn't really walk, so his wife had to accompany him everywhere. Different time, completely different time. How do you mean? 
I mean, if this happened today, do you think that he would take a day job? He'd probably also be paid like millions of dollars. No, that's why this was so wild to me. It was really weird that he knew that he was not going to live for more than a couple years at best. Yeah. And he took this strange day job as kind of a cop. You know, he could have been a, a, a motivational speaker or a coach or, or all kinds of things. Executive vice president of Chock Full of Nuts or something. He could have done that. And he did have offers to do that kind of stuff. But he wanted to, to be the parole commissioner. Um, but he, <laughs> okay. he only did it for a short time before he died at his yeah. house in the Bronx. Um, yeah. And we talked about whether the repeated head injuries and concussions played a part in the disease. It's, again, unclear, but... That's a, a sad story about a man who died. The end. Okay. Uh, hey, listen, our other uh, year that we're covering this year is 2004, uh, and uh, I have had that date circled on my calendar since we started working on this because I said uh, we had to talk about the Red Sox. Um, because personally, for me, uh, the 2004 Boston Red Sox are a big, significant uh, team in my baseball fandom. Uh, and so as soon as the opportunity came up, I filtered out our spreadsheet uh, for players who hit Tater Tots in 2004 and performed for the Red Sox, there were two names on that list. Uh, one of them was Adam Heisdu, and the other one was Alice Burks. Uh, and if you are reading our, uh, our episode title this week, you'll note that we're about to talk about Alice Burks a little bit. Uh, but I do want to say that for a while, I was fully committed to talking about Adam Heisdu until I sat down and read about Adam Heisdu uh, and discovered that he is uh, not as significant of a baseball player as he was in my mind. Um... <clears throat> and the reason for that is that um, he played for two, I think two or three years with the Pirates, uh, and his son uh, was in my little league. Um, so that's <clears throat> really all that I have to say about Adam Heisdu. But we're not here to talk about uh, Adam Heisdu, we're here to talk about Ellis Burks. Um, in his prime, Ellis Burks uh, was considered to be a true five-tool player, um, which is very surprising because I had not heard of Ellis Burks before I started researching for this podcast. And incidentally, uh, happy birthday to Ellis Burks. He celebrated his 55th birth- birthday uh, last Wednesday. A good birthday. A good birthday. The big five five. The big double We're going to have to retire that digit as well. Which, the five? Yeah, I mean, in honor of his birthday. In honor of this one guy's birthday, we will have to... Okay. <laughs> we will, it'll hang in the tater tot rafters. Um, <laughs> the digit five. Uh, uh, similar uh, to... Lou Gehrig, Ellis Burks also hit a home run uh, out of a professional baseball stadium uh, as a high school baseball player. I think I didn't mention that about Lou Gehrig. But oh, I thought it you might had. be true. Okay. Claire. Uh, this is more likely to be true. He played baseball at a time when it was easier to report the news. Yeah. Um, credibly. Uh, he hit a, a home run in an all star game out of Arlington Stadium in Texas. And in uh, 1987, at age 22, Became uh, just the third Red Sox player in history to hit 20 home runs and steal 20 bases in one season. Uh, the players to do that before him were Jackie Jensen, who I've never heard of, uh, and Carly Stremski, who is on the top 10 uh, list of uh, single-season war all-time. Uh, that, 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 that base-stealing skill was probably the first of his five skills to go. He had, a lot of, he had a lot of injury problems with the Red Sox in particular. He had a lot of knee injury problems. Uh, with the Red Sox, and I think that uh, part of his downfall uh, was when his manager, whose name was Joe Morgan, but not that Joe Morgan, uh, noticed that he was not as confident in base stealing as he once had been. And incidentally, shortly before he uh, left the Red Sox as a free agent, he had shoulder surgery, so that'd be another tool uh, 
more or less down the tubes, although he, he did spend the rest of his career as an outfielder and um, much of it as a right fielder. Um, but I would imagine that the throwing arm was probably not quite the same as it was uh, when he was a young man. Um, <clears throat> but that is for later dates. Uh, in 1990, which was his best season with the Red Sox, he became the second Red Sox ever to hit two home runs in the same inning of a game and the first to do it since 1928. I believe he is still only the second player to do that. It's an uncommon thing to do. Yeah. Uh, in 1990, which again, best season with the Red Sox, he made the All-Star game, won a gold glove and a silver slugger and batted to a slash line of 296, 349, 486. Exceptional season. He had some struggles uh, with the Red Sox, the injuries that I mentioned, and uh, a couple of uh, uh, clubhouse clashes. It was reported, although I don't have a ton of evidence for this. I tried to do a bit of research, but couldn't find anything definitive, uh, that he had clashes with uh, uh, clubhouse leaders like uh, the aforementioned Joe Morgan um, and uh, uh, the world-famous Wade Boggs. A better reported clash in the clubhouse came Oh, it wasn't reported as a clubhouse, uh, as a clash. I would have to think that I wouldn't be very happy if this happened to me. Uh, one of his outfield uh, teammates, whose name was Mike Greenwell, uh, captured a live alligator uh, when the Red Sox were down in Florida for spring training, uh, taped its mouth shut, and left it in Ellis Burks's locker. Uh, yeah. Now <laughs> I gotta say. Sounds I have to lot. say. Yeah. This is absolutely bananas. Or What? Are you kidding me? That's crazy. <laughs> Uh, for what it's worth, I think Mike Greenwell is a Florida native. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, of course. So that's that's why he has a uh, facility with capturing live alligators and taping their mouths shut and then leaving them in people's lockers. Sorry, he is a Kentucky native. Uh, uh-huh, uh-huh, oh, wait, uh-huh. no. Uh-huh. That's not quite right. He's probably one of these guys who was born in one place and then moved to another place because he went to high school in Fort Myers. I really don't have a lot of interest in whether he had previously wrestled gators or where he grew up um because i think the act of capturing an alligator Mm -hmm. taping its mouth shut presumably with duct tape but imagine and then leaving it in someone's locker is a very scary thing to do yeah really mean mike greenwell uh earned the nickname (laughs) the gator uh as a result that is such a charitable nickname for such a such a horrifying thing to do I would Ellis- call him uh, the uh, creepy, scary man. Sure. Uh, Ellis Burks uh, left the Red Sox and free agency and signed with the White Sox uh, at age 28 in 1993. Maybe because uh, he didn't want to share a clubhouse with Mike Greenwell, the weirdo. Right. I don't know why you would want to after that. Uh, uh, he signed a one-year deal with the White Sox, presumably as like a you know pillow contract. Something to prove himself. Uh, and he did just that. He uh, batted uh, 275, 352, and 441 uh, with the White Sox in the regular season and 304, 407, 478 um, in a losing effort to the Toronto Blue Jays in the ALCS. But, you know, those are good numbers. Those are uh, five-year contracts with the Colorado Rockies numbers. Um, and it was in those five years with the Rockies when he absolutely made his mark on baseball. Uh, first of all, just to, for starters, in 1994, he hit the only walk-off home run in the history of Mile High Stadium, um, which is notable, but not that notable, um, because the Rockies only played two seasons in Mile High Stadium, and both of them were strike-shortened, and in 95, they moved to Coors Field. Huh, huh, um, that's did you know the Rockies set uh, 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 attendance records that still stand because of those two seasons? Because they were in a football stadium? Yep, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And people were really excited about baseball, I guess. Right. Strike, sh- strike shortened seasons, but they averaged uh, 
a little bit over 55,000 a game, and also the total for the season, in spite of the strike shortenedness, uh-huh. uh, is a record as well, a little bit over 4.5 million, I think. I wonder if the strike shortenedness helped a little bit, because it encouraged people, people to get to the games while they could. Thirsty for baseball, yeah. But that's uh, that's pretty interesting. I didn't know that. Yep. In uh, 95 was when they moved to Coors Field. Uh, there are a bunch of like records that the Ellis Burks era Colorado Rockies set as a team around home runs. But For dehumidifi- dehumidified baseball in see, Coors Field. That is what I thought you would say, and that is why I did not put them in the show notes. I'm sorry. Uh, in 1996, uh, Ellis Burks had what would have, what certainly would be his uh, marquee season. He finished third in MVP voting. He led the National League in slugging with a 639 mark. Total bases, 392 and uh, 93 extra base hits. He was second in hits um, with 211, second in doubles with 45, and second in average with 344, and fifth in home runs with 40. He came in fifth place in home runs and hit 40 of them. That's a lot of home runs. I don't he- mean to take anything away from, from Ellis Burks by suggesting that his statistics were false or anything. I do think it was a very high offense uh, environment in that era, but certainly. certainly still a very good baseball player, even um, era and park adjusted exceptional work uh ellis burks and his teammate dante bichette whose son Bo bichette is currently a uh, shortstop in the i think he might be in the majors now right yes Bo bichette for the toronto blue jays Ble- yes i believe that's correct ellis burks and dante bichette are uh remain only the second teammates to hit 30 home runs and steal 30 bases in the same season the only uh-huh. other teammates to do that are howard johnson and daryl strawberry of the 87 mets oh ellis burks was traded to the giants at the deadline uh in 1998 uh, for Daryl Hamilton and Jim Stoops. Um, I think that was a buy for the Giants. Uh, they also bought Joe Carter. Yes, um, I believe that's true. This season is talked about a lot. I don't have that much context for it because I was a wee babe, but they, certainly I knew about all of these players just from rumblings that you hear occasionally about Giants history. They came in second. Uh, they were nine and a half back of the Padres that season. I don't think anything. I don't I don't even think they made the playoffs, unfortunately. Well, pre, pre-wild card. You know, they tried. Sure. Um, in his it would two make se- it into the playoffs soon after that as Definitely. well. Definitely. In the two seasons, that two full seasons, at least, that uh, Ellis Burks played with the Giants, mm-hmm. um, he hit 312, 404, uh, 568, often uh, batting fifth behind uh, the likes of Barry Bonds and Jeff Kent. To me, that's a good lineup. Very good lineup. Talk about your murderer's rose. There's another one. Yeah. And featuring uh, my friend Ellis Burks. Um after 2000, it seemed like uh, the remainder of his tools had sort of diminished. Uh, he was 36 at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and he signed with the Cleveland Indians uh, to perform designated hitting duties. And he still played pretty well uh, as an, uh, an elder statesman. Um, I think that this is a kind of a career arc that people would envy, uh, where you, you sort of age in a way. You kind of gracefully. fade out rather than get toppling to, off a cliff get to or very developing easily. a terminal illness. Right. <laughs> Settle into a DH role and, and bat well to a 287, 364, 520 line. He hit 66 home runs uh, with the Indians, which is pretty good for late in a career, I would imagine. Played for three seasons and in 2004 re-signed 
um, with the Boston Red Sox. With those 2004 Boston Red Sox. Yes, indeed, as they broke mm. out of their uh, long slump. He himself only played in 37 played, uh, excuse me, I think like 11 games, 37 played appearances to a 182, 270, 273 slash line, uh, but he did hit his 352nd career home run, uh, which would prove to be his last, um, and uh, got himself a World Series ring uh, in his last season as a professional baseball player. Do you uh, remember him being on the Red Sox that year? Was he not. even on the playoff roster? Uh, I don't know for sure. That is something that I should have looked into. I, I don't think he was. I, I certainly don't I, remember I doubt him. it. Uh, he I, was such a marginal player that year. Yeah, he was um, nearly 40. Um, uh, but certainly that was an interesting baseball team. Would you like to digress about it a little bit? Not really. That's what I'm trying to get at, which is that uh, we could have um, uh, made a whole podcast out of a digression because there's not a lot to talk about uh, with Ellis, with, excuse me, Adam Heisdew. Adam Heisdew. Uh, Ellis Burks had himself a very solid major league career uh, and brought his train metaphor uh, into the station. Mm-hmm. Brought Just his house onto the cliffs of South America. Dropped his house right onto the the scenic cliffs of a fictional South American country. He invented a, a necklace for his dog that allowed it to talk. Discovered a rare bird. Um, just as these Red Sox were breaking a historic streak and reigniting my interest in baseball. And I have read books and watched movies and watched highlight packages to death about that team. And uh, I could have learned nothing about Adam Heisdew and retrod all that ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, but instead, I learned about a baseball player who had a very exceptional career, uh, who uh, aged gracefully, who uh, overcame, in some cases, some racism, it seemed like, in the early Red Sox uh, uh, clubhouse, and made himself a career in baseball. He, After he retired, uh, became a special assistant to the general manager in Cleveland. Uh, I think he did some front office work in uh, Colorado as well. He's currently uh, an instructor and a scout in the Giants organization. Um, and his son, Chris, uh, is in the Giants uh, A-League team, uh, the Salem-Kaiser Volcanoes. Chris uh, Burks? Chris Burks, yep. It's not a good sign that I've never heard of him. Well, he's young. Yeah, and uh, uh, he lives in a place, <laughs> uh, Chagrin Falls, Ohio. <laughs> I like, like that the name of his town is a, is a sentence. Is it a sentence? Chagrin. It's a poetic sentence, but yes, Chagrin Sh- Falls, Ohio. Chagrin yeah. <laughs> Falls, Ohio is also a sentence. <laughs> Bit of a bleak uh, town, but that's what's ironic because he is uh, an enjoyable. Not so base- bleak a career. No, a very enjoyable baseball player, and uh, 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 an enjoyable career. It seems. Seems like. Uh, well, I'm happy for him. It's it, too often uh, these tater tot stories are wrought with misery, or or careers ended too soon as is the case with the Lee Gehrig. So, I don't know. It was, it was nice to, to get a guy who who had a full baseball life. Still living a full baseball life. What are we talking about? Hey, I think that Christopher Burks may be out of organized baseball. Oh, no. When I looked him up this morning, I thought that he was still on the Kaiser Volcanoes. He was last year, but oh. he has no statistics for 2019. Uh-oh. And being that he was 24 years old in low A. Uh-oh. And performing not great, I'm wondering if that was all the chances that he got. Maybe he will become a parole commissioner in the state of New York. Uh, one can only hope. <laughs> Seems to be the dream. Hey, 
that's gonna do it for us this week on tater tots uh, i believe we only have two weeks left uh in the regular baseball season uh and then we will go into hibernation and prepare our uh i guess our regular season uh year in review uh of the tater tots of 2019 so buckle in because we are almost done with our journey through baseball and tater tots past um Hey, got a snake fact for you. One consequence of the introduction of Burmese pythons in Florida has been an increase in transmission of the Everglades virus. The pythons eat so many mammals that mosquitoes are forced to bite the less preferable hispid cotton rat, a potent disease vector that makes Miami a hotbed for the infection. Hey, listen, the food chain is no joke. That is going to do it for us this week on Tater Tots. Uh, As always, you can find a link to donate to Baseball for All. And our show notes, that's an initiative that gets girls involved in youth baseball programs, is very important. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at TaterTotsPod. You can like us on Facebook. Find the Facebook URL slash TaterTotsPod. And you can email us, TaterTotsPod at gmail.com. Next week, 1924 and 2003, two years that are notable for no reason uh, that can come to mind. So I'm sure that the field will open up a little bit more uh, than it was this week. Okay, uh, that's going to do it for us this week. Uh, bye. 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 Possible.